I just didn't want to disappoint my parents. If there's any credit due anybody for my success, it's having a mother and father that I had. I would never be who I am today without them because they kept me guided and working hard. And if it was up to me, I'd be, you know, racing motorcycles somewhere. Hi everybody, welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you listening from places like Norristown, Pennsylvania, Hastings, Michigan, Ketchikan, Alaska, Mohali, India, Lausanne, Switzerland, and Manchester, England. Thanks for joining me, and we've got a lot of new listeners out there, and the Instagram account's been blowing up lately too. That's pretty cool to see, so I really appreciate all the new followers over there. And if you haven't done it yet, leave me five stars and a quick review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And it only takes a couple of minutes to write a review, but if everyone listening did that, it would basically turbocharge the show and it would really help grow the audience. Now, I don't want to sound like your third grade teacher over here, but do me a favor, just take a minute and do that, all right? Okay, well, today I've got a terrific episode for you. Whoever said nice guys finish last never met Bruce Meyer. He's a self-made man who's achieved great success in the retail business with a store in Beverly Hills and then in the world of real estate. And his resume as a car guy is almost unbelievable. Over the last 55 years, he's built a stable of cars and motorcycles that rivals any collection out there, including cars that have run in the 24 hours of Le Mans and some very significant hot rods, pre-war cars, dragsters, you name it. Each of them has a great story to tell. Bruce was the first chairman of the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles. He knows just about everyone in the classic car world. He's on a first-name basis with legendary racing drivers, and he's had a long association with the Pebble Beach Concord Elegance, and I'm just scratching the surface. But above all, he's a really nice guy. So I was pretty thrilled when we sat down recently for this interview, and I hope you enjoy it. From Bruce's first car to his 200-mile-per-hour runs at Bonneville, he's had one rule never lift. You'll hear it all coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. No matter what's in your garage, you can fit all your automotive heroes on a shelf, and they've got you covered whether it's 143rd scale, 118th scale, or even the ginormous 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. Go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and get 10% off when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now my interview with Bruce Meyer, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Well, Bruce, thanks for having us in today place is amazing. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, Maurice, because we've been uh, meeting at car shows all over. And That's right. You have that great mustache. You're easy to identify, and I love your enthusiasm, so it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Well, you probably don't remember this, but uh, I think 2019 at Pebble Beach, I kind of came up to you on the stand and said, Bruce, I'd love to have you on the show. And of course, there's a million things going on, and you were a little bit distracted, but I'm finally glad we can sit down and um, a couple of months ago our mutual friend Kip Cypress sent me a message that said hey Bruce wants to come on the show so here we are. No 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 (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding no Kip is a very dear friend Kip Kip is great and you can't say no to Kip that's right so he said Bruce you know you you know Maurice does this great show and I think you'll enjoy it you know will you yeah come on so anyways I'm just messing no it's fine I love it it's a pleasure to be here thank you I'm glad um Bruce, why do you think we care so much about these cars? What, what is it? I mean, out of all the things that you can spend your time and money on. Well, for me, and I'm just guessing for yourself, it's part of your DNA, your genetic makeup. I mean, I have loved cars from my very first breath on earth, okay? Cars and motorcycles. And I think what drew me to them at the beginning was the idea of, of getting something that was powerful and would take me for a ride, you know? Sure. You could drive yourself rather than pedaling a bicycle and so forth. So, so I've always loved cars. And as a young person, you always like to go fast. 
And I just think it's, it's something you can't take out of me. I, I have three children, and it took on one of them, and he's as car crazy as I am. So I think it starts with the love of, of being transported fast and fun. And then as, as you uh, begin to experience more of the hobby and meet more of the people, because it's all about the people, you realize how important some of these cars are and how historic some of them are. So I think today I'm probably drawn as much by the history of the car and the story that the car tells. Um, in the beginning, it was just give me anything with wheels that had an engine, and I want to go there. Right. And what was your first car? Well, I built a, a, a little lawnmower-powered car that uh, air-cooled, and that was my first mode of transportation. My first car that that I had some ownership in was a 1950 Plymouth, which was in 1958, which wasn't cool. My great aunt willed it to my sister, right. my sister and I. And uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't anything I dreamt about or really wished for, but it was- It was, it was a set of wheels. It was a set of wheels and it was available. And, and my parents were, were, were not car people. I mean, and that's being, polite. I mean, you know, they, they, there was no bigger waste of time than foolishly spending your time on cars or <laughs> mechanical devices of any kind. You know, just work hard, save your money, and you know, that type of thing. But um, So my first car was, a, was this 50 Plymouth. But the first car, well, when I went to college, you go through orientation. And um, they have different um, you know tables set up for like the guys were looking for guys for crew and swimmers and that type of stuff they're trying to pick out the athletes or there was another desk for college loans and my dad had given me the tuition money but I, I visited the college tuition loan desk and they said no we will we'll loan you the money for your tuition interest-free as long as you pay it back by the end of the school year I said I'll take one of those you know well I already had the money so I, I spent the money, I bought a 50 Merc. So that was the first car that I kind of decided for myself. You know? Was it a lead sled? It was, it was a black coupe, which was fortunate. And the first thing I did is I torched the front springs, drop it down in front. And I drove it for probably six months of the school year, sold it to a fraternity brother and paid the loan off and off I went. But the first car that I really, really did some homework on and, and first new car that I ever had was a Porsche. Uh, in 1961, I was a 61 model. I bought it in 1960 from the local dealer in Hollywood, Competition Motors. So John Von Neumann. John Von Neumann. And uh, so that's, that's kind of like my first car. I was uh, um, 20 years old. I'd saved my money. My dad said he'd pay for half my first car. So it, it paid off. And I convinced him that that was a compact car. 60 horsepower, you know, safe. And so that was my first real car. Sport. And you obviously did your homework. Well, you know, I think back because <clears throat> when I was growing up, I, I loved going to drag races and high horsepower cars. And up until the time I, I ordered the Porsche, I, I was looking at uh, Chevrolets with big engines and four speeds because Chevy came out with you know, it was just a car that I related to. My very best pal growing up had a 57 Chevy with, back then they didn't have four speeds, they had three on the tree, you know, three speed. Sure. On. So I always kind of looked for a high horsepower Chevrolet with standard transmission, and then they came out with a four speed, and, you know, my gen, like 59, 60, 61. So I, I was going to order a the cheapest body style, because I knew I could get that by my dad, right. and with the biggest engine I could in a four-speed. So that's kind of what I was eyeing for. And then, um, so that was like in 1960, we were gonna do that deal, and then I kind of have been eyeing these Porsche cars running around, they intrigue me. I, 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 I love the look of them, I was following racing a little bit, and I thought, you know, that might be an interesting option. So I looked into it, went up to see John Von Neumann, got all the brochures, and I, I, I actually took European delivery. Um, 
I, I took a year out of school and went around the world. So uh, picking up the Porsche was like a really big thing. So I picked that up in 1961 in Stuttgart. Wow. Was it a kind of a red carpet service for you? I mean, because I, European delivery was really a big deal in those days. Yeah. Well, they used to make a big deal out of it. And, and um, I, don't remember the, I don't remember the event so much because I was so looking forward to the day. I mean, I literally slept with this Porsche brochure. I would look at it. I, I, it was my red period. So I had Signal Red, which is the brightest red they made. And black interior, chrome wheels, because I love chrome wheels. No options, no radio, nothing. Small engine, no sunroof. Um, but all you needed. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, so I was a Porsche owner in 1961. But so I, well, you go to the factory and you announce that you're there, and they have the, it wasn't like they have it in a special place and they do a whole hoopla, but they had somebody deliver the car to me, and then they had a, one of the employees came out and gave me a, lesson on driving the car and what to do and what not to do and off I went and I drove it around Europe a bit and shipped it home and had the car for from 61 to 64. And meanwhile back here in Los Angeles, Southern California, that, those early 60s that was quite a time for the car scene. I mean what was that like? Do you, what are your memories of because we're talking about a time when like cruising was a big deal you had um, uh, SCCA racing was a big deal. A lot of European imports were hitting the United States. So there was a lot going on. And then, of course, people in, in the Southern California region like Keith Black and Mickey Thompson. So I was talking to a friend of mine, and we decided that, that he and I are the same age, that we grew up in the best time in the history of the world. <laughs> I mean that. I mean, I, the, six, the car culture in the 50s and 60s was amazing. I, I grew up in Hollywood. Um, so the drive-in circuit, Hollywood Boulevard, you know, we'd cruised every Saturday night. That was just like what we did. But it was a time where, where you know, you could save your money. And my Porsche was $2,700, brand new, $2,700. The radio upgrade is $2,700 today. So, so I grew up at a time when you could buy your dream 40 Ford for $50. Um, I grew up in the time when you could work on the cars yourself. You didn't need a laptop. I grew up at a time when you could afford things. You could work on them yourself. There were enthusiasts. Uh, you, you could succeed in business if you worked hard um, and and I I don't think that's quite the same today or quite the same even before that because the gen before me were the were the people that came back from the war the Korean war after we kind of I, I was too young for Korea and too old for Vietnam so I, I never went to war so to speak but uh, I was just born in the sweet spot of time. So getting back to your thing about California in the 60s, um, I turned 16 in uh, 1957. So from 57 to like, you know, 70, I mean, this was amazing. I mean, there were, if, if you wanted to race sports cars, you could. You could just literally tape over the headlights and go racing. You, if you wanted to go drag racing, you, they, there was a class for everything. Yeah, plus there was Lions Drag Strip, Ascot Park, right? Uh, Ascot wasn't, oh yeah, yeah. Ascot was the roundy round. Right, right. And motorcycles and stuff. Right. So you're right. Drag racing, you had Irwindale and San Fernando and Lions and Santa Ana. You had just a, you could go drag racing any weekend you wanted to. And Ascot was great. I didn't grow up circle racing so much with jalopies you know sure. that kind of stuff and I didn't I didn't really have the, the the discretionary money to do anything on a high level everything I did was you know pretty low level <laughs> <laughs> well I mean you've clearly corrected that right <laughs> we've well, got some of the most valuable cars here in in 
your collection. And I, but I know you don't like to call yourself a collector. You like to call yourself an enthusiast. And the collecting just naturally follows that passion. But um, as a young man, I know you were working for your parents, kind of in the family business. But you had ambitions. You had, you had kind of a vision for where you wanted to go, right, professionally? Well, I, I didn't work for my parents or, until like... Well, I, I shouldn't say that because my dad, it's a long story, but he ended up buying a store here in Beverly Hills. And there were four employees. My mom worked there. My grandmother worked there. I had to be there. I went to L.A. High School, which is in the center of L.A. I had to be at, at work every day after school. Um, so it wasn't, it, it was like all hands on deck just to keep this little business afloat. Um, so I grew up with a good work ethic. And, um, and, but it wasn't like I was in a family business other than I was in a family business. It wasn't like, I never thought of it as a career. My dad thought of it as my career. Somebody asked me, what are you going to do when you grow up? My dad would answer. He's coming to work with me. You know, it's kind of the way it was, but, and family businesses are, are, I I think I love family businesses. You know, uh, it's fun when you're able to work with your children or your dad. I was very blessed to work with my dad. Did you, did you have any fear of failure? Do you have any, did you have any doubts as a young man? What am I going to do with my life? You know, it's so funny because um, just recently I was talking to my friend. We, were just, we, were, we go way back. And I think if I had any fear, it was the fear of failure. I just didn't want to disappoint my parents. I, I, if there's any credit due anybody for my success, it's having a, a mother and father that I had. I mean, I, I would never be who I am today without them uh, because they kept me guided and working hard. And if it was up to me, I'd be, you know, racing motorcycles somewhere. I mean, they, 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 they really gave me great guidance and a good sense of value. So I didn't want to fail. So failure was a really big thing for me. I did not want to fail because they had given me guidance and love and... And the last thing I wanted to do was disappoint my parents. So that was a really big thing for me, really big thing. Uh, uh, funny you should mention that, because I was trying to think the other day, you know, kind of where I am and why I am, and I think that fear of failure had a lot to do with guiding me. And I never had any ask. If some, I mean, the idea of being a wealthy person never was, it, that was never an aspiration for me. To, to have a lot of money and that never, that never drove me. I, I, I just um, tried to do the right thing and followed, you know, my own, you know, with the car thing. My, uh, well, you're what tiny. you're looking at here is 50 years of one car at a time. And uh, I'm, I've tried to be very select on what I buy. I try and buy the absolute best example I can of whatever it is. Cry once, right? Yeah, I say, yeah, that's right. Buy the best and cry only once. Yeah. And, and uh, it's the truth. That's been my guiding star. I, I really, a, a friend came in here the other day and said, you, you just had to steal all these cars, you know. You know, you're in them for nothing. I said, I looked around, there isn't a car in here that I paid under retail for. And, and most of the time I paid a premium to have that car. So... Um, I've just tried to buy the best example. Well, the story that I love is uh, the sealed bid you did on, uh, it was the Tessarosa, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a car that I'd been chasing for, well, John Von Neumann, was, he sold me my first car. He was also a customer of our store, so I knew John Von Neumann. I'd always admired him, and I remember looking through historical pictures of Von Neumann, and uh, he had this Testarossa, and it was called Johnny Von Neumann's Hot Rod. Now, at the time, it wasn't like a GTO or something like uber expensive thing that I'd have to sell every last thing I own. You know, it, it just seemed like, a, like something I could maybe afford. So in, in our hobby, there's guys that can go out and find anything. So I had the two big... Uh, um, Porsche or, or car finders looking for me uh, and one of them came back to me and said that car you'll never get that car I said why is that he said the car that car 
had been uh, impounded by Interpol. You know, that's the, like... International Police Organization. Exactly. And that it was going nowhere. It, it had belonged to a, uh, a famous drug dealer, and they had seized all of his cars, and it's in... It's in uh, um, impounded? In the Hague. Impounded. So I thought, well, that's enough of that. Well, uh, you know, fast forward a year or two, and I, I'm on my way to Goodwood, and this friend of mine calls me and said, you know, I think that Testarossa you're looking at is going to go for sealed bid auction. Now, I'd never been on a sealed bid auction because you don't know where to start. You know, you don't know if it go low or high, you know. And so I, I literally was like Wednesday, and I was leaving Thursday for Goodwood. I, I was taking that Corvette to Goodwood. And they said, you have to have a letter of credit or, or a certified check in an envelope to, to bid on the car. And I'm going, holy cow, I'll never, I mean, there's no way I can put that together. So I called this friend of mine who had great banking relationships, and um, Chip Connor, who's a well-known collector. I said, Chip, you got to help me. I need a letter of credit for X amount. And can you connect me with your bank? I promise you I'm good for it. I'll take care of it. So Chip... <laughs> Made one call, done, deal. So I go dancing across the ocean with my letter of credit, and I hired an attorney who was well-known for car transactions, and I said, this is what I want to do. He said, no, I'm happy to handle it for you. So I, I put in my first bid like on Thursday when I got there, something like that, and I put in a bid that I thought was, if I can get it for this, I'm going to be really happy. And I'm thinking nobody knows about this, you know, because I didn't know about it, and I thought I knew where what was happening globally. And I get to Goodwood. Everybody's talking about this auction in, in The Hague. You know, all these cars. Well, holy cow, you know. So people do know about it. <clears throat> so I called the attorney and I said, um, we better raise my bid, you know. Raise it to, you know, a little higher. Because I, I just, I don't want to miss this car. And that was on Friday. And they were opening the envelopes Saturday. Well, I, one thing, I get worked up, really excited, you know, and I didn't sleep at all Friday night. I thought, if I miss this car, I'm going to be so unhappy. So I called the attorney early Saturday morning. I said, just bid the whole letter of credit. And if I don't get it, then I can't afford it, and that's it, you know. I, I gave it a good try. I still wouldn't have been happy if I missed it. But So the next morning, Friday at noon, on the windshield wiper of the Corvette is, a little, is his business card. He said, you won the, you won the car. So I, I won the car. So now I'm thinking, I wonder who was the underbidder. You know, how foolish did I go? And within like an hour or two, uh, one of the fellows from Symbolic, which was a big Ferrari dealer at the time, came up and he said, we were the underbidder on that Testarossa. I said, you were? I, I said, how do you know what I bid? He said, oh, no, it's published. You know, I really, I said, well, how far under were you, you know? And he told me, and it was just, you know, a very f small part of the price. And I thought, well, I, I just l lucked out. So anyways, that's the story. And that car has the most extensive competition history of any Ferrari that's on the books, right? Yep. So it, it didn't win any, like, Targa Florio or Le Mans or Nürburgring. It was... A car, John von Neumann was kind of the champion of, of the West Coast and Mexico. I think he raced that car at Nassau one time. But it won, I think the first year it won like 50 races. It was, it was the most winning Ferrari. And when Ferrari celebrated their 70th anniversary, they, claimed, they did a video on that car as being the most winning Ferrari ever. So I guess it's won more races than any other Ferrari. But... You know, not the great races, but a lot of wins, you know, P1s. Who's been the biggest influence on your life, either professionally or, or in the car hobby? Well, I mean, my parents going away. So, I mean, there's, it's, a, it's a long second. In 1968, in this location, I opened a candle shop. Uh, you know, basically, when I graduated from college, uh, I'd worked, let me just say I'd worked my way through college in the hospitality industry. I, I bust, I hashed at sorority houses, and I, then I was a bus boy, then I was a waiter, then a bartender. So when I graduated Berkeley, I was, I was a bartender, basically. So from Berkeley, I went to Lake Tahoe and had a bartending job. Perfect. Living the life. Yeah. 
I always say, you know, I never let Berkeley get in the way of my education. <laughs> I had the best time ever. Um, I worked at a place called the Forest Inns, which was basically a summer resort. And then um, when I came back from Tahoe, I took uh, about five months off and went to Europe in, in like late 64, 65. And then when I came back from Europe, I went to work in Michigan. So I just kept, you know, out there having fun and doing fun jobs. So in 1967, 68, I came back here and opened a candle shop in this building. And my landlord was a gentleman by the name of Herb Peters, who was a very wealthy Texan. And his wife was Ethel Peters. And, and Ethel's father invented the brand Ethel, you know, in sure. gasoline. Yeah. You know, you put in regular Ethel. Right. It's so the high, it's the high test. High test. Well, yeah. yeah high test. We used to call it Ethel. Right. And, um, and so, so he, he rented me a little shop downstairs so I could open a candle shop. And then um, I decided, because I was like in my late 20s, and that's about as smart as you ever get in your whole life. You know, when you're in your late 20s, there's nothing you can't do. So I decided to get into the mail order business. So that's when I rented this place here. So I've been here 50, you know, plus years in this, right in this location. Right. We started a mail order business right here. At any rate, I remember telling Herb, if you ever sell this building, you gotta sell it to me. And I'd never bought real estate, so to speak, you know, of any magnitude. And uh, he came to me and said, Bruce, the gentleman next door wants to buy the building and he offered me X for it. And, uh, you know, if you want it, you always said you wanted it, you know, it's yours for, you know, for that same price. So I said, oh my God, I want it. I didn't know how I was gonna get it, but I somehow, you know, begged, borrowed, money so that I could buy this building and that that was like in the I was saying this was probably in the early 70s mm -hmm. and and so uh, after we closed escrow he came to me and said if you ever want to make a substantial amount of money the guy next door upped his offer by two hundred thousand dollars two hundred thousand dollars to me was like you could retire on that. Yeah. But I can just remember what what Herb taught me was when you shake hands with somebody and you make a deal you stick with it right to the end. He was that kind of guy. And, and in today's world, if that guy had raised the, the ante, the owner would come back to me and say, you know, Bruce, I gotta give you more because he just raised his bid and I've gotta, he'd always find a way. But Herb was a, a mentor to me in that really demonstrating how important a handshake is. And he was also a member of the Rotary Club. And by the way, I, I didn't, my look in the late 60s was not a preppy look. No. And, and uh, I didn't look like I belonged anywhere other than a candle shop. Right. And he took me in, he introduced me to the Rotary Club. I became a Rotarian in 1970. I was on the board of the Chamber of Commerce in the 70s, you know. So he took me and, and showed, the, showed the community, like, you, you can still look like this and be an upstanding member of the community. So I, I've always admired Herb for being a man of his word and for having faith in me. Uh, and I guess other than my parents, I look back at Herb and I think, you know, there's a guy that if you can get somebody that believes in you and hangs with you, it really does matter. Well, and the other thing that strikes me about that is that, you know, you mentioned Rotary Club. You're kind of learning from an older generation of gentlemen that's part of Rotary at that point. You're surrounded by guys who, in one way or another, I'm sure mentored you. You know, it's very interesting because growing up, uh, my grandmother lived with us. I always have always loved older people. There's, they have so much knowledge and experience that they can impart on you. And a lot of young people just dismiss older, older people, now that I'm a senior. <laughs> um, but I, I always have been drawn to, to, to the you know, an older generation. And, and being a member of the Rotary Club was important to me because the mayor was in there and the police chief and the fire chief and all the upstanding people in the community were in there. And, and, and that helped me in my career. Being, you know, keeping an open mind, meeting your elders and learning from them. So I think there's just a lot can, that can be learned from 
you know, the older generation. Right. Um, well, Bruce, how about how about some racing heroes? Because I know you're really passionate about racing history, and you know, you've had some really fantastic drivers as personal friends. That's a good question. Um, I grew up. My first hero was Parnelli Jones because he was on Channel Five, the Jalopy Derby, mm-hmm. and so the first guy I cheered for was Parnelli Jones. So he he is probably the first guy I even knew was a race driver that knew the name of Parnelli Jones. And then as I got older, you know, you you, you kind of learn more and broaden your your view from Jalopy Racing. And I guess Dan Gurney would set as high a bar as you could. I mean, there was a gentleman, raced everything, yeah, did it all in a first-class manner, a patriot, uh, and turned out to be a, a very good friend. And I'm still his widow, Evie, and Justin and Alex are still really good friends. So I, I think that just knowing the Gurneys has been a real treat for me. And so I would say Parnelli, then the Gurneys for sure. And then it would go it would drop down quite a ways from there. <laughs> well, I mean, Dan Gurney for president is all I've got to say to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I, I just celebrated my 80th birthday. And one of the, one of the um, gifts I got were from the Gurneys. And, and in the 60s, they did, license, they did these bumper stickers, Dan Gurney for president, okay? Yeah, car and driver. Car and driver. Yeah. And, and so, so they did a little video. They sent me a video for my birthday. And they're all in, in uh, Justin's Suburban, and Evie's in there, and all the kids, and they're all yelling, Bruce, happy birthday, and it was, you know, like from the windows, and they drove off. And then the camera goes to the back bumper and says, Bruce Meyer for president. <laughs> and a Dan Gur- I mean, you know, oh, God. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, those special. Gurney people are just the best. Yeah, that's <laughs> just, fantastic. <laughs> All right, Bruce, I have to ask you about another guy that you knew who has become this mythical creature, Steve McQueen. He is now on this pedestal. And I just want to know about the guy, the, the real guy. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because he is a special guy and still to this day. And right next to me is Clark Gable's Mercedes. And Clark Gable was the king and was the guy. And, and uh, most of my son's friends have no idea who Clark Gable was. To me, he was like the most important actor in the world, you know. Sure. And now McQueen, who's since passed, is still like revered for all the right reasons. I mean, he was the king of cool. Yep. And when I was growing up, I, I, I raced motorcycles. And there was always the McQueen, Bud Eakins, Dave Eakins, you know, Malcolm Smith. They were all the, like the really good, good riders, you know. And I was way back in the pack. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I, they, they hung out. They were always nice to everybody. It wasn't like they were, they didn't want to socialize or so I, my, my recollection of Steve was very much a man's man. Of course, the women loved him. I mean, he, he loved his beers, and he loved his bikes, and he loves his cars. Mm-hmm. And, and um, always very friendly to me. Uh, I owned one of his cars, and I sold it back to him with the idea that thinking he's going to sell it right away and I'll get it back. We made an agreement. If he sold it, it would come back to me. It was a Porsche, right? Yeah, a little Porsche Speedster. I'd owned a car for, oh gosh, probably 12, 14 years, maybe longer. And I loved the car. And he heard that I had it. He approached me and he said, oh, it's probably not my car, but I'd love to see what you have. And so I said, sure. So I showed it to him. And by the way, when I got it, I, I paid $1,500 for this car. And the fellow that sold it to me, as we were just kind of concluding the deal, he said, this, this used to belong to Steve McQueen. I go, oh, cool. It didn't mean anything. I wouldn't have paid him anymore. And I think he was making Have Gun, Will Travel or some, you know, it was a, he was a TV star. Yeah. Didn't matter. And then as time went on, it started to matter. I, ne- I didn't, like, think, well, this was Steve McQueen's car, but it was cool. And so he called me and said he'd like to see the car. He was pretty sure it wasn't his car, but he'd love to see it. And I said, sure. So... My wife, who loves movie stars, she w- went out with me. We met in Westwood because at the time he was living in Malibu. 
and, and we met in Westwood, and, and his eyes just lit up when he saw this car. And uh, he gets out of his car, he just like runs for it, you know, and he, he, he starts like tearing into me, li literally tore the glued down carpeting off the back so we could see if the roll bar mounting was still there. And then he checked the front spare tire and it was a racing recap. He said, oh my God, this is my car, you gotta sell it to me. Well, this was, the, I, hadn't, I didn't wanna sell it, but after about three months of his calling every week, begging me to sell the car, I thought, you know what? I can probably do without it, and he really wants it, and I'll do him a favor, and hopefully it'll come back to me in some way, someday, and so I sold him the car. And then probably three, four, five years later, he dies, and then uh, Chad has the car now, and I'm happy Chad does, because I mean, that's a, it's a meaningful car. That it was Steve's first Porsche that he bought brand new and raced it. It's a family heirloom. Oh yeah, it's in the right place. I would sure love to have it sitting right where we are, but yeah. it's in the right place. Yeah. Now you've called Le Mans. The Super Bowl, World Cup, World Series all rolled into one, right, in the automotive world. And I know you've been to Le Mans a number of times and you own uh, cars that raced there and won their class. What is it about Le Mans? T tell me your personal experiences there. Well, my personal experiences are not worth repeating. <laughs> but, but the history of Le Mans, the importance of Le Mans, is it's everything. It is everything you just said. It's the World Club. It's the Olympic Games. It's everything. And, and I think if you ask any racer what's the most important motorsport race in the world, other than maybe a, an Indianapolis you know, guy, and I used to think Indianapolis was pretty important, and I had a winner from Indy, but it was important to building the brand of Bentley because they won it so many times. Porsche's in there to win it because, you know, that they say win on Sunday, sell on Monday. That's right. Ferrari, I mean, this is Audi. You know, th these were all important moments in history. And, and, and the, the place to express your, you know, the, the build of your car and the endurance and the speed is Le Mans. 24 hours. Today it's a sprint race, but I mean, you know, Corvette, I remember I had the, the 1960 Corvette, which was the first Corvette to race at Le Mans. Briggs Cunningham put in three cars. But it's everything to the driver and to the automobile manufacturer. It's everything. And it's so important. And, and I would say maybe, oh, 20 years ago, I started figuring out this Le Mans thing, and this is really important. I bought my first winner, uh, it was a Ferrari from 61. The short wheelbase short Berlinetta. Short wheelbase Berlinetta. That was my 60th birthday present to myself. I really, that was a big stretch. And, and then since then, we've put together five winners, and they're really important to me and, and to history, and right behind me is the Corvette that won in 09. Very important Corvette. So if there's any theme through here, other than the fact that I bought them one at a time over so many years, it's Le Mans. You know, we have probably focused more on that than anything else. Well, and you know, that's why I asked you about it because uh, you do have so many significant Le Mans cars here. Um, and the other thing, Bruce, is that next year is the 100th anniversary. And I know that Automobile Club of the West is celebrating, starting now, they're celebrating for the next full year, mm -hmm. the, the centennial, which is cool. Very cool. And, and Pebble Beach this year uh, will have a class, 100th anniversary of Le Mans. We have two cars going for that. And we also have two cars at the historic races, the Bitserini and the Porsche. Um, so this is a big deal, 100, 100 years of Le Mans. Yeah. I, uh, this will be coming out after Pebble Beach, but I'll see you there. Yeah. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Uh, I can't wait. I think if there is a common thread that runs through this garage is that every car has a story. Yeah. And I think it's about the story. It's not just another one of those, but it's a car that won Le Mans or a car that had, has some distinctive history, whether it's owned by Clark Gable or the first Corvette. I like the story, and that's what I, I've tried to stick with that. With the Duesenberg we have, it's a one-off built for Colonel McCormick. So it's, it's not just another Duesenberg or another RS, it's a RSH, you know. And you have 
production Shelby Cobra number one sitting over there. Right, and I've been a Cobra guy since 1965. I, I've never been without a Cobra. I think if I, of all the cars I've ever owned, my favorite is a Cobra. And, and that's just like you say, it's not just a Cobra. It's the very first one, serial number one, which really meant a lot to me. I mean, I've had other Cobras and I've sold them just because that's the one for me. Was Carol Shelby a friend? Yeah, Carol Shelby was a good friend. Um, I actually met Carol Shelby through Robert E. Peterson, the Peterson Museum. And Robert E. Peterson, and most people know, he was the publisher and the creator of Hot Rod Magazine. So if there was any publication or printed matter that influenced me, it was Hot Rod Magazine. I, I mean, I poured over that magazine and I, I think that's one of the biggest influences of my automotive life was Hot Rod Magazine. And, and also Hot Rods in general, whether it's the Scarab Lance Reventlow. Lance Reventlow Scarab or, or the uh, Cobra or even the Corvettes. These were all created by hot rodders. Yeah. People do not give hot rods or hot rodders the credit they deserve. These young men came out of World War II with all this new technology from the war and they put it to work building hot rods and Bonneville cars and racers and you know, Jim Hall, the Chaparrales, these were all hot rodders. Hot rodders were the genesis of every cool, fast race car from like the 40s to the 70s, really. All hot rodders, at least out of this country. In England, they, they came from the war, but they didn't really have hot rods, like as we know hot rods. So hot rods are really important to me. And, and, and by the way, can I just mention that you deserve a lot of credit for getting hot rods on the lawn at Pebble, right? That was a, that was a long slog, but you did oh, it. Oh, my God. So, so yeah, um, for t- it was a 10-year beg fest. I mean, I, 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 for 10 years, I lobbied the, the producers of Pebble Beach to bring in hot rods, how important they were. Every article, Phil Hill was a hot rodder. Dan Gurney was a hot rodder. They were all hot rodders. And I sent them every article that came out that referenced any credible person to hot rods. I would send it to Lauren Tryon and, and uh, Jules Human. Finally, I just broke them down. After 10 years, I still have the facts. It was like, Bruce, are you sitting down? Okay, this was, in 19, this was Christmas of 1996. For one year only, we're going to do hot rods. And like, don't ever ask us again, okay? We're going to do it for one year only. And they put us in 1997 at the very far end of the show field. I mean, any further, we would have been in the water in the bay. <laughs> and what was really fun is if you looked over the whole show field, which you could do from the lodge, everybody was down by the hot rodders. Everybody was relating to the hot It was a massive success. So it just made my day, you know, seeing hot rods at Pebble Beach. Were- and they've been back every other year this year. They're doing the 90th anniversary of the 32 Ford. Yeah, that's so right. I'm 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 partial to the 32 Ford. So and you've been and you've been vindicated now. Yeah, and you know hot rodders are as talented and have the same eye as some of the best coach builders in history. They really know a line and a form and a shape. I, I agree 100 percent, and they know how to make things work and go fast. And they're they're craftsmen. They're welders, fabricators. Great eye for design. Because there's some hot rods that just stand out or just, you know, mouth-watering, and others just miss. So there's great designs in hot rods, and there's no right or wrong. Hot rodders in general, whether you pull up in a 27 or 28, 29, 30, 32, it doesn't matter. They're just happy to see you and happy that you're enjoying the hobby. It's the, it's the most welcoming group of hobbyists. And so... so Anyways, I just going back to, to Robert E. Peterson, you know, so, yeah. so Peterson was a neighbor of mine. We belonged to this group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. So we were in that together. And, and Peterson loved planes and fishing and hunting were really his passions. But he found this old building in, the, in L.A. It was a department store that was just a derelict. And Peterson always liked opportunistic buys. So he thought it was a really good deal. So he basically bought the building and said, Bruce, this would be a great car museum. So, you know, 
I was kind of the, the front man. I was, I guess they, they call the founding chairman. I chaired it for the first 10 years. And I put, I put the last 25, 30 years of my life into that place. And it's never been better. We have an amazing, talented ex executive group there led by Terry Cargis and Michael Bodell and his whole crew. Museum has never been better. We're in the black. We have a huge endowment and great plans for the future. So the Peterson Museum is, stands on its own as being the finest car museum in the world. I just have to put that pitch in there. I don't know what, I forget what your question well, was. Well, no, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was actually going to ask you about it because when, when I, you know, my first visit to the Peterson was somewhere in, I want to say, 99, 2000. Mm -hmm. But you've taken it in recent years from a place where the, the setups were kind of a, a little bit of a diorama style, right? Which you can see just about at any car museum. And today it is a world-class exhibition, every, you know, rotating and curated amazingly well. I mean, what it reminds me of is the sort of blockbuster exhibition years in fine art museums that we saw starting in the mid-90s. And you guys have taken that concept and run with it. And it's just, I mean, it's fantastic. Well, thank you, Maurice. And, and we redid it, you know, about 10 years ago. When we first started the museum, we, we partnered with the Natural History Museum. And if you go to the Natural History Museum, dioramas are a big part of their exhibitions. They'll show a dinosaur or some long-tooth lion saber cat. or some saber cat, and they build a diorama as it was. And we did that with our cars. But we also found out that people that visited the Peterson and saw the American underslung stuck in the mud or our gas station, they'd seen it once. There was no reason to really go back. So we found out that 70% of our visitors were first-timers. And, and that seems cool because we're drawing 70, but it's not what you want. You want it the other way around. You want 70% of the people to come be return visitors. Right. And so we did away with the dioramas. We have state-of-the-art exhibits. We, have, we can do surround sound, surround videos. We just opened an exhibit of Andy Warhol, who is maybe one of the top contemporary artists of all time. Sure. And he did a suite of cars, Mercedes cars, that are priceless. Mercedes sent us over the cars and the original art. There isn't a museum in the world that wouldn't give anything for this exhibit, any art museum in the world. So we, we have world-class art exhibits. We have a James Bond exhibit there now, supercars, hypercars. It's, it's just an awesome place, and it's doing really, really well. And, uh, and it's all because of Robert E. Peterson, Hot Rod Magazine, you know, his success. He, we would never be there without him. You know, obviously your collection is varied. Of course, they're all, for the most part, high-performance cars, right? But what was, what's been your favorite drive, whether it's, uh, and, and this, this goes with, you know, the car and the venue, because I know you've, you've been to Goodwood, you've done the Mille Miglia. So that's a really good question, because every car in here is such a distinctive personality on the road. You know, the Bentley behind us, we've toured Europe in it. We did a rally from Budapest to Prague in the Cobra. The Duesenberg is just a big, you know, honking 400 horsepower truck but and and the porsche 935 800 horsepower it, you better be pointed laser straight or it's gonna swap ends on you but my favorite ride is bonneville you know um growing up as a hot rodder i always wanted to race a car at bonneville and 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 uh, i raced a 83 camaro I went 224 in that. But then I wanted to race in an open car, a hot rod. So we built a roadster, and I wanted to go over 200, and we accomplished that. So that 200-mile-an-hour ride, to me, was the ride of my life. I can't think of anything that was more exciting and more fulfilling than going over 200 in an open car. So I, I would have to say the roads to ride at Bonneville, 
tops them all. Where, where was your focus at that point? Was it, were you just thinking, I gotta keep this thing straight? You definitely have to keep it straight. That's number one in your mind. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I raced motorcycles when I was younger. My parents didn't even know I owned a motorcycle because I, I did, that was my life that they didn't know about. And because and, uh, I could keep motorcycles when I was in college, of course, they wouldn't know. And I could, when I was younger, in my teens, I had motorcycles and I kept them in friends' garages. But um, in, in, in like the early 60s, I started racing motorcycles. And, and I'd think all week before the racing, I really shouldn't be doing this. If I get hurt, you know, my parents are just, oh, they would be so disappointed, you know. And, and then come the weekend, you put that helmet on, that, the last thing you're thinking about is your parents, you know. You're just, your eyes are like this, you just want to go for it, you know. And, and so um, when, you're, when you're at Bonneville, I think most of all you want to be safe and you want to keep the car going straight. And, and a lot, there's a lot, it seems like, oh, this is simple, you know, straight line, anybody can do this. Well, it's like doing a wheelie for three miles, you know. You, gotta, you, you don't want to, first of all, you, that, that Roadster has like 800 horsepower, maybe, maybe 900. So the, at any time, you, you know, the, the rear wheels could start spinning. And, and, and the rear wheels want to pass the front wheels. So if you're not going straight, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come about on you. So it's, it's, it, there's an art to going straight, and there's an art to going over 200, and that's just the most memorable ride of my life. And then I joined the 200-mile-an-hour club, which was just something I, I still can't believe that I'm in that. I, I'm so proud to wear that red hat. That's awesome. Big well, deal. You know, that, that brings me to... Um, your motto, which is never lift. And I know you got that from Parnelli Jones. And when I hear that, what I think of is seize the day, right? Do what you want in life because life is short. Is that, is that pretty much why you've adopted that motto? You know, it is. Um, it is because I just love activities and taking advantage of every moment, but it means more to me now that I'm older. You realize the only thing the only thing you have in life is time and health. And you take any one of those two ingredients out, it's over. And, and any moment you have that you're healthy and you've got some time in front of you is a, is a good time. So I just, I just say keep focusing on the front, do what you like, never lift. And, and if you're lucky enough to have a profession that you enjoy, you never work a day in your life. And I've always, I've been so blessed. And I thank God, literally, every single day. Absolutely. Well, you're known as the nicest guy in the car hobby, and it's really true. So, Bruce Meyer, thanks for having us in. It's been a real treat. Well, Maurice, it's, it's my pleasure. And you're a great champion of the hobby and the passion. And I, I'm, I'm honored to have you here. And, and you're always welcome here, Maurice. I appreciate it. All right, brother. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash HB Heritage. You can drop a few bucks in the gas tank over there and keep this ride going. Great way to support the show. And tell your friends, write a review. Like I said, all of those things help me reach more gearheads like you. I'll see you back here on Wednesday, September 7th for more of the people and the stories behind the machines. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>